Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, the day after the French Open final on the men's side, in which Stan Wawrinka ruined Novak Djokovic's party. And Serena Williams won Grand Slam title number 20. My name is David Law. I'm sitting alongside Catherine Whitaker, who has just finished the World Tour, or at least the European Clay Court Tour. Catherine, we sit here in the clubhouse, overlooking centre court at the Queen's Club, home of the Aegon Championships. And you've been asleep for about the last 48 hours, haven't you? I have, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for outing me. Yes, I returned from the French Open and, as you say, from my sort of six-week-long European tour of the world's most beautiful clay courts. And now here I am, about four years of sleep later, sitting in front of Europe's, the world's most beautiful grass courts. It's, uh, it's a nice life just at the moment. <laughs> and she calls this work. Uh, now, today, we obviously are going to look back on Roland Garros and talk about the wonderful matches that we've seen and the great storylines that have developed. We're also going to hear today from the groundsman here at the Queen's Club, the man who looks after these beautifully manicured grass courts, Mr. Graham Kimpton, and also a photographer from Getty Images called Clive Brunskill, who's been taking pictures of the greatest tennis players in the world for decades. He'll tell us exactly how long uh, when we speak to him a little bit later in the show. He'll also be talking us through some of the great stories stories and memories that he's got of traveling the world on the tennis circuit but that is later in the show because first of all Catherine Whittaker we've got to talk about an extraordinary set of stories one after another during Roland Garros starting really with Rafael Nadal's second ever loss in a decade of going to the French Open Novak Djokovic thinking he'd finally finally done what he needed to do to win that tournament for the first time Andy Murray's surge through the draw and eventually him falling short in the semi-finals. And yet it was Stan. Stan who came out on top. Who would have predicted that? Well, David, it's funny you should say that because uh, you didn't ask me for my prediction yesterday. And I know there is no reason for any single listener to this to believe me. But had I been asked for a prediction yesterday and had I been feeling brave enough to speak my mind, which frankly I usually am and it usually backfires on me. But had those set of circumstances arisen, I think I might have gone for Stan Wawrinka, you know. I know nobody is believing me. I can see the look on your face. But all I can do is tell you, I think I thought only by a whisker. I certainly wouldn't have said it would have been in four sets and I certainly don't think I'd have thought it would have been in that kind of style. But I think I 
might have gone for Stan, you know. I was certainly, a couple of people asked me yesterday, and of course this wasn't on the record, so it's very easy to say when it's not going out on Twitter to our many thousands of followers. But I did say, do you know what? I've got a feeling it's going to be Stan today. What I love about the way she's just delivered that story, everybody, is she actually did it. She had the gall to do it with a straight face as well. But uh, Catherine Whittaker there, uh, here on the Tennis Podcast, saying that she would have backed Stan Wawrinka to come through. Well, in terms of a match and an occasion, I, I spent the whole match just waiting for the storm to subside, the Stan Wawrinka tornado to blow itself out. And, and the biggest astonishment for me is that it didn't. And I think that's what Novak Djokovic was waiting for as well. And I think that was the problem. I think his policy throughout that third and fourth set was, well, I knew he was capable of this. I've always known he was capable of this. He went into that match knowing this could be a four-set match, it could be a five-set match, but he can't sustain it for three sets. And uh, he was waiting for the dawn to come, and it, and it didn't. And uh, obviously, in hindsight, that's the wrong ploy at the time. I think it'd be difficult to, to, to say that was a bad tactic for Novak Djokovic because, frankly, I think everybody watching, certainly all the commentators I were listening to, were waiting for that as well. But then maybe you've got to say he's the world number one. He's got the weapons to be aggressive and to take the match into his own hands. Maybe he should have tried that, certainly at some point in that fourth set. But... uh you can't blame him. As you said, everybody was waiting for uh, for the purple patch to end and it, it just didn't. How long? I mean, if it had been a seven-set match, how, how, many, how much longer could he have gone on producing backhand winners for? I would love to know. I'd love to, it to have played out to its, to its natural conclusion. Could he, would he have just played like that all day and all night if he could have done? I mean, it was just what a day, what an occasion, what a moment to play your absolute best tennis what a fantastic feeling that must be to play the best you've ever played when it matters most which is exactly what Catherine Whittaker experienced at the Royal Albert Hall about six months ago when she squeezed past me in the tiebreak 11-9 and she's smiling at that memory uh, now the, the the big thing is as well I think this tournament is the first time that Vavrinka has ever experienced that feeling of finding his best and sustaining it for that long. Even when he won the Australian Open, if you remember, he managed to beat Djokovic in five sets, but there were ups and downs within that five-set period. When he played against Nadal in the final, he was he was amazing for a while, and, and then he had a dip, and then he came back. It just didn't happen this time. And I suppose one of my big questions now is, could this be a platform for something else? He's won two Grand Slam titles now. I put out on Twitter last night, at Tennis Podcast, if you'd like to follow us. And I mean, I said it sort of tongue-in-cheek and just to, to get everybody talking, really. But could this guy now go on and win Wimbledon and the US Open this year and beat Novak Djokovic to the career slam? Well, I think the answer to that is, of course he could. I mean, he would, he would have beaten anybody playing the way he did yesterday. Absolutely anybody. I mean, we saw what he did to Roger Federer. He absolutely carved him up. And Federer was playing well at that tournament. So, absolutely he could. Nobody, I don't think, even in spite of what we saw yesterday, is going to put any money on it. Because we also know, 
I mean, I, I said it, um, I recalled it in uh, the French Open f- preview podcast with Carol Bouchard when we were talking up Stan's chances, particularly Carol, who, who I think deserves a doff of the cap because uh, she did tip Stan Wawrinka, not necessarily for the title, but she tipped him to, uh, to do big things. And I said, yeah, but I watched him six weeks ago or four weeks ago, as it was then, in Monte Carlo losing one and two in the third round, which would have been his second match because he got a bye in the first round. I saw him losing one and two to Gogol Dimitrov. And it was possibly, it was the most woeful tennis performance I've seen this year, if not ever. It was... What, by anybody? <laughs> I, I, with the sole exclusion of what I saw opposite the net, in the other side of the net at the Albert Hall last December. But uh, it was a, it was abysmal. It was absolutely abysmal. And, just, I mean, it was a different, different man. I mean, I know well-documented things going on in his personal life and et cetera, but this was only, this was six weeks later. So he's, in, he's capable of incredible highs and incredible lows. So I'm certainly not putting any money on him winning everything going from now on. But equally, why not? If he if he can find the formula to do what he did yesterday, week in, week out, well he's he's a world beater. Well when he is on like that, he I mean Mats Velander said in commentary on Eurosport uh, and I think it was the the day that Vavrinka beat Songa, he said at the outset that when Vavrinka is on his game he is the most exciting player in the world since Roger Federer at his best. What a statement that was. And that created a bit of a stir, I have to say. But I thought about that. And then coming into the final and just feeling the way that Vavrinka hits the ball and the way it makes you react to it as a spectator. If, you, if you're just a, a neutral observer of you come in occasionally to watch tennis and you're expecting to see the favourite win, Vavrinka makes you feel like the odds are meaningless and that anything could happen and that this guy could just take out anybody in the world on his day. It doesn't matter who it is and it doesn't matter what the surface. Well, I mean, I get excited every time I see him teeing up for his backhand. Every time. I just cannot... I could just watch a highlights reel of him hitting backhands all day long. I mean, I've never felt so inadequate about having a two-handed backhand. I've, I'm booked to play tennis with my brother tomorrow night for the first time this uh, this spring-summer season. And uh, I'm going to ask him to teach me a one-handed backhand. I just can't go through the rest of my life with a two-handed backhand. It's just not, it's just not good enough. I need a one-hander after watching what I watched yesterday. It's just every time he does it, I, I, my heart skips a little beat. And that is exciting. But, but Catherine, you are not going to be able to quite quite replicate the stand backhand in one practice session with your brother are you no but I can have my own little equivalent can't I I can still have that feeling of hitting a one-handed that's all I want I just want that feeling does it count if you top edge it uh yes if I connect with the ball it counts they all count okay right uh Novak Djokovic how sick must he be feeling right now I, I mean I really genuinely felt a bit sorry for him yesterday I I, I I have such a lot of respect for what he's done this year. He'd, he'd only lost twice all year. He's been the overwhelming number one player in the world. I also thought he was incredibly magnanimous in defeat yesterday against Stan Wawrinka. It cannot have been easy. But just imagine how he feels at the moment. He is still searching for that elusive French Open title. Will it ever come? Well, Wawrinka thinks it will come. He said with certainty last night in his press conference, Djokovic will win one of these. And I think 
I think of course he will. Of course he will. I mean, he's too good a player on clay not to. However, this is going to take some getting over. I actually, this is going to make me seem like a, a horrible sadist, but I was, I was really glad to see him let it out a bit. I was, I was glad to see him cry because I could see that he was crying on the inside. Why wouldn't he be? I mean, he's... He's been so honest about how much he wants this. And we, we discussed in the lead-up, maybe he wants it too much. And maybe on reflection, that will be the narrative that will be placed on it. He just wanted it too much and it paralysed him in the end. I personally think that doesn't give enough credit to Vavrinka. However, that could be one complexion you put on that final. But uh, I could see how devastated he was and completely justifiably so. And I was pleased to see him just let that out a bit because I think he does a lot of... Um, disguising how he feels he does a lot of saying he's not bothered about things when I think he is for defense mechanism Def- absolutely very justifiable defense mechanism. for example about I think it does bother him when the crowd gets against him but you know he's very maybe magnanimous is the word he's he says he doesn't let on how much it bothers him so I was really pleased to see in his reaction probably only a glimpse of just how devastated he was but to see the real Djokovic that was probably just dying a bit inside yesterday coming through and that'll probably help him get over it how he needs to be honest with himself about just how devastating this is because it is it is once he beat Nadal in the style he did and coming through that match against Murray of course he wouldn't have been dismissing the challenge of Vavrinka but he'd have, it would have been like Federer not winning it in 09 of course Federer did win it so we don't know how Federer would have reacted had he not won it in 09 but it's a little bit like that, and this is going to take some getting over. Certainly is. And as Catherine delivers that verdict on Novak Djokovic's day yesterday, the lawnmowers have just fired up. You can hear them in the background as they're mowing those beautiful stripes on this green grass court with its blue surrounds, bright, gleaming blue seats. It's lovely here at the Queen's Club. And... We are going to be ready for grass court tennis in just a few days' time. But first of all, we just want to talk a little bit more about the French Open, which we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks, Catherine. I think it was one of the great French Opens in so many different ways. And because there were so many plot lines, obviously Serena Williams will get on to talk about in a moment, who's now gone on to 20 Grand Slam titles. But before we get on to Serena, Rafael Nadal lost again. And I have to hold my hand up. I spent the whole clay court season building up to it, saying he's a different man when he gets out on the clay. If the sun shines, it'll be different. And when he gets out at Roland Garros, the evidence suggests that, it, that he just flicks a switch. Well, he showed how human he is over the last couple of weeks. He didn't play badly, but he certainly wasn't Rafael Nadal all-conquering of the last decade. And, well, he's just got to go back to the drawing board, I think, now. Isn't that the problem, though? He didn't play badly. I, the problem is his playing, his playing well is not the same as what his playing well was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Yeah, but I think that is, I still think that is in there. He's still capable of it. I just think, he, I think there's, a, there's a confidence issue more than anything else. I do too, but uh, and, uh, and again, we have to preface this with our not being technical experts on the game. I mean, it, of course, it's impossible to say where confidence stops and the technical begins because of course one deeply influences the other and vice versa but there are no doubt technical issues he was dropping that ball very very short he looked a a tiny bit slow by his own extremely high standards and it was it was the depth 
on on the shots and the issue with Nadal's game is that it's obviously all about the spin it's about the high bounce when you've got a high bounce and it's landing short all that means is it's in the hitting zone for a player like Djokovic it's just there to eat up his game only works that high bounce only works if it's catching you off guard and you don't have time for the backswing he's horribly exposed with his game sort of almost more than anybody else. I mean, Murray can cope better with dropping a ball slightly short. So that's a really critical area that needs addressing. It's not just about confidence. It is about that that technical area. Maybe it's the lack of confidence which is prompting that in the first place. I don't know. Only he and probably Uncle Tony will know that. But I don't think it's simple enough to just say oh he just needs to get wins and get back into the groove of things because I do think there's some practice court work to be done but as he said in Madrid I haven't forgotten how to play tennis. Catherine Whitaker there delivering a technical masterclass which is exactly what she uh, gave to me after the Royal Albert Hall encounter which uh, I lost. Uh, no, uh, You do have a one-handed backhand though so that's that's a victory of sorts. And I got three of them in the court in an hour. <laughs> three of them, which is what I'm aiming for on tomorrow against my brother. Three 100 backhands landing inside the court. That's my target. Okay, we'll we'll get back to you that on that, listeners, and find out whether she actually managed that. I I, I will make a prediction uh, that she won't. Uh, Andy Murray's run to the semi-finals was was impressive, wasn't it? And again, I, I thought that before the tournament he he may well run into Ferrer and not be able to get past that barrier and I was really impressed the way he took Ferrer down in that match and showed a new side to himself an improved side and he was not far away against Djokovic. It was such a marker that Ferrer match of how much better he is on clay than even a year ago and and Yes, he's, he's been saying it all season that he feels better, he feels like he's playing better, but that was a concrete marker of just how much better he, he was. He very convincingly beat somebody that he'd never beaten before on clay and somebody that doesn't give you anything. You're not going to catch Ferrer on a bad day, and he didn't. He just... And he also, I don't think Murray played sensationally in that match. He just looked a class above. He just looked better player on clay which which is a huge step forward for Murray and provided he stays healthy he he is a contender at French Opens in the future now I think he's a contender pretty much as you said earlier anywhere he plays tennis at the moment when he arrives here in a few days time and plays on this center court on which he has won three times he's going for a record equaling fourth title here at the Aegon Championships he'll be part of a field with eight of the world's top 13 players plus Nick Kyrgios plus Leighton Hewitt I think probably Murray is the favorite for 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 the title he's going to be the highest ranked player here I, I think he is the most adept on grass of everybody even obviously Grigor Dimitrov is the defending champion here but he's been struggling for form Murray will come in here as the favorite and if he plays like he has been playing and particularly with the extra week giving him some extra time to prepare for this tournament he is going to take some stopping this grass court season I think I think he's going to win Wimbledon yeah I don't even think that's that bold a prediction I think he really should win the title here at Queen's given I mean he's a three-time champion should he's a Wimbledon champion despite how fantastic the field is yeah he should be coming here thinking this title's mine to lose he's oh come on that's ridiculous 
How is that ridiculous? He's the top seed here. He's a three-time champion. He's a Wimbledon champion. How is you that ridiculous? You can't come into a tournament thinking it's mine to lose. I think, uh, yeah, I think the best players in the world do do that. Don't you? Don't they just take it every match in a time like I do? No, that's what they say in press conferences. That doesn't mean I'm going to win. It means I'm the best player here on this surface. If I play as well as I know I can, I should win this thing. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, I suppose they do have that innate belief, don't they? But do you think that they actually have any sort of conscious thoughts like that? Or just, just or do you think it's that is wrapped up in the, the veil of that thing confidence that we talk about? I think uh, Djokovic probably would have struggled to have conscious thoughts before yesterday's final along the lines of, if I play my best tennis, I'll win this. And I don't think that's any discredit to him. He's the best player in the world by a mile this year. How could he not have those thoughts? Yes, you can have thoughts of anybody can have a bad day. Of course we know that. And he would have known that. But when you're that good, how can you not think, if I play my best, I'll win? Of course, that's logic. That's not... Anything else would be denial. That would be not a logical way of thinking. So I think Murray coming in here, there's no Djokovic... He plays brilliantly on this court. I think he will be thinking along those similar lines. I think she's talked me into it. Um, now, Andy Murray, uh, generally speaking, though, played a level of tennis during that, that match that I don't think I've ever seen before from him. And that's even when he's won two Grand Slam titles. It was, it was a, that purple patch. And I'm particularly thinking about the... Was it the fourth set? Against, uh, against Djokovic where they resumed after the restart overnight and Djokovic came out and this is, this is a, a talking point that we've put out on Twitter for you today when have you seen the best players in the world play their best tennis at the same time in a match and for me this was a classic example of that three all two sets to one down Djokovic came out hit a love service game to go 4-3 up Murray replied with a love service game and suddenly they were dueling from the back of the court and it was a level of tennis that Djokovic has been producing all year long and Murray went with it and eventually found something even more on top of that and, and I just thought it was the most pulsating mesmerising 10 minutes of tennis that I've seen in a long long time it was. It was absolutely... I mean, I could barely contain myself watching that in my lounge. I think all my housemates have moved out because of the, uh, the antisocial noises I was making from the lounge. Uh, it was, yeah, pulsating. All the, all the uh, colourful words you just used, all of those. Other examples that you can think of of matches where two great players have played their best tennis at the same time? Well, of course, there are incredibly obvious examples that I'll, I'll leave to you, David. I have to say, the first one that sprung well, to my mind... Are you mind, saying I'm obvious? <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to mention Wimbledon 08 final, for example. And I would maybe even throw in the Wimbledon 09 final, Andy Roddick and, and Roger Federer. I think they both played sensational tennis in that. And as you know, I'm heartbroken for Andy Roddick. That, despite my now being an enormous Federer fan, I'm heartbroken for Andy Roddick that he doesn't have a Wimbledon title to his name. However, the one that sprung immediately to my mind was the 2005 Australian Open semi-final. Federer and Safin um, pulsating is absolutely a word that I would use to describe that. I think I've admitted on the tennis podcast before that I was watching that in my university common room, again, making noises that made me pretty unpopular. 
and it, I think I'd have to go back and watch the DVD. That's something to do on a rainy day, isn't it? Going back and watch DVDs of old matches. I'd have to go back and watch DVD to remember exactly when... You know, YouTube has been invented. (laughs) Exactly when and for how long they both played at their top level. But I think there were long periods in that match and certainly at the sharp end, they were both playing their absolute best tennis and it was incredible. Actually, I was thinking on the way here... What does the the Vavrinka win over Djokovic remind me of? And it reminds me of that. It reminds me of Safin against the all-conquering Federer and somehow finding a way to beat him, even though Federer was playing well. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, save match points. It was, I mean, that was Safin at his very, very best. Went on to beat Hewitt in the final. That was that was the Marit Safin that we should have seen for for lots longer and more consistently. But uh, for anyone that doubts what level of talent Marit Safin had, just go back and watch that match. Because that was Federer when he was Federer. That was Federer at his absolute peak. 05, 06, that was utterly dominant Federer. And he beat him the hard way. Sure did, but Safin... There are a lot of parallels to draw between Safin and Vavrinka, I think. OK, one-handed backhand versus two-handed backhand, but both of them absolutely lethal. And both of them had that sort of otherworldly power that could make people in the crowd wince when they saw the ball being hit, as though they felt sorry for the ball. Because that's how I feel when I hear... There's a different sound when Stan Vavrinka hits the ball. There is. It's that beautiful snapping a carrot in half sound isn't it which everybody every professional tennis player that hits a ball cleanly makes that sound but it's somehow a crisper snap but it makes me shudder when I hear it when I I see him winding up for either forehand or backhand I almost feel myself brace myself Um, well, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, there's 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 no there's the the sound when it comes off his racket is special. The the way he generates pace, I don't think you can teach that. That comes from timing. You know, look at the pace that tiny little Justine Enan was able to generate on her one-handed backhand. That was purely from timing. And yes, obviously, Sam Vavrinka has a bit more stature, well, a fair amount more stature and muscle to throw behind his, but he still generates it from nowhere. I remember at one point, I can't remember what point it was in the match yesterday. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. He was running backwards 
and he hit an off-balance one-handed backhand. I think Djokovic was the net and it, it came right at Djokovic's body and it just arrived at him so quickly, didn't, you know, barely got a racket on the volley and that was completely off-balance running running in the wrong direction. He can just generate pace, which is something... He, he made Djokovic look a bit sort of feeble. At he made Djokovic look like he hit a feeble ball, which we know very well he doesn't. But the contrast in pace for large portions of that match was it was a big golf. Big well, golf. The, the, there's an explosiveness to Vavrinka's hitting, isn't there? And of course, there was that one-handed backhand around the net post. Oh my word! Now, other examples that you've given us at Emerald two two nine says Kleisters against Serena Williams in two thousand and nine at the U.S. Open in the semi-finals before the footfalls, before the meltdown from Serena. Epic sets of tennis. Agree with you there. Vitali fifteen says Borg against McEnroe that tiebreak in nineteen and. Uh, 80. Matt Roberts says Federer against Djokovic in the French Open semi-final in 2011. Djokovic on that 42-match winning streak and Federer finding another level. This is what it's all about, isn't it? It's about great players giving you their level and somebody else coming up and matching it or even managing to better it. That's what we're talking about here. And great examples once more there. Other examples, Ewan McQueen says, uh, thinking out of the ordinary, the obvious ones, what about Nadal against Vadasco in the Australian Open 2009? That's a good one, isn't it? That is a good one. That was cracking. That was really, I mean, and also Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final last year, without doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jen Matthews says Djokovic against Rafa in the Roland Garros semi-final fifth set in 2013. That was an awesome set of tennis, wasn't it? I mean, how many Djokovic-Nadal matches could or sets or points or games could you pick out? I mean, we could be here all day. And likewise, Nadal and Federer and Federer-Djokovic. The rivalries are magnificent, aren't they? We are so spoiled. We are just so spoiled. And I think with with particularly with Federer reaching the twilight, dare we say, of his career, everybody is suddenly realising just how spoiled we are and how it's not going to last forever. But mind you, look at what's coming up behind them. It's Kyrgios and Kokonakis, isn't it? Everyone's pretty excited about that. Absolutely, and why wouldn't they be? I would just like to throw into the mix as well Andre Agassi against Pete Sampras in the 2001 US Open quarterfinals, and I will never, ever forget watching a standing ovation, I think, before a tiebreak had started. The set had been so good, 23,000 people stood to give these guys a, a round of applause and they couldn't play for about a minute and a half because the, the standing ovation was going on. Wow, can you think of any other time when that's happened? Only when you and I played. <laughs> <laughs> there was only one person in the crowd though and they didn't have anywhere to sit, so they had no choice but to be standing. Well, what it was, the they'd got some dust on their hands so they were clapping them together and standing up at the same time. I call that a standing ovation. Now, Serena Williams is edging ever closer and this one she had to do the hard way because all the way through the tournament Serena Williams was struggling and she was having to just drag the last little dregs of inspiration out of herself that she could possibly find to to get herself past match after match it seemed but now she's on 20 Grand Slam titles. 
Two away, two away from the big one. And yeah, she 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 came into the French Open with a niggling elbow problem, a niggling elbow problem, which I think is still there. She, she said a couple of times in press that it's just a question of managing that at the moment. It wasn't getting any better. She was just trying to play through it. And then in the second week, she got afflicted with this lurgy, which I'm really worried that I might have given her because I got ill about... You can stay away from me then. Three days. I'm worried that I was the conduit between Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams for that illness. I'm worried I was the sort of incubator between them because I was. I thought I'd caught my cold from Maria Sharapova, having moderated and stood next to her in many press conferences while she sniffled her way through them. Then I got ill, and then a few days later, <laughs> Serena Williams got ill. So hopefully, I won't get sued or anything. But anyway, and then yeah, second week she got this uh, obviously quite debilitating flu. And is there anything more dangerous than a wounded or ill Serena Williams? I mean, it messes with your mind, doesn't it? It messes. With, I mean, poor old Tamir Bashinsky. I mean, we've seen it so many times, haven't we? It's it's an age-old story in tennis. It's such a cliche when you see somebody injured or ill. You know, all the commentators say, remember how difficult it is to play an injured or ill player. And, and everybody knows it. And yet still, it's impossible, almost impossible, to avoid falling into that bear trap, isn't it? Well, certainly it's difficult, I think, to... I imagine, this is my only guesswork, but I imagine it is difficult not to play with that in your mind i.e. do you do you are you able to just carry on hitting the same forehands and backhands that got you the first set on the board or do you try to change things if somebody's got a leg injury do you start throwing in drop shots you know that is the the conundrum that faces a lot of players and of course Tamir Bichinski is relatively speaking an inexperienced player as well and well I think it probably did affect her but fact of the matter is Serena Williams does have an ability to draw on something. No matter what the situation, it seems to me these days, she goes for it. She just did what she had to do, and that was get angry and just hit out. I agree with you. She did what she had to do. She is an incredible champion. She is an absolutely incredible champion. I think she will get to 22. Really? When? Beyond. Quite soon. I think she'll win... Probably at least one more of the remaining this year. It'd be amazing if she did do the can- calendar year Grand Slam. It would, and who who is going to stop her from doing that? Um, she's certainly the favourite, isn't she, for the next two? She's certainly the favourite. Yes, yeah, she is probably odds on to do the calendar year Grand Slam. Now we know with Serena, she can get upset in the particularly in the opening week of a Slam, and we know there are niggles there physically. But hey. If she she can win the French Open, her least favourite Sam, she'd only won it twice before, which for Serena is a poor record at a tournament for her to have only won it twice in the past. For her to win it in these circumstances, I think, is an incredible achievement. I think she does what she needs to do to win. And when people look back, they'll see 20 grand slams. They won't see, oh, but, you know, she there were histrionics on the court and everything and that's why she's got 20 grand slam trophies and I've got zero so who am I to criticize I didn't I just didn't personally enjoy seeing her be so demonstrative about her illness that's just my personal feeling I felt I felt I just felt a bit uncomfortable for her opponent because it's obviously so difficult to deal with but she didn't break any rules I don't think for a moment she was faking she was 
definitely ill without doubt she was ill and she was struggling and even if it was just a cold a cold can feel pretty darn rotten at the best of times and let alone having to go out and play a grand slam quarterfinal or grand slam semi-final so i don't think she, i don't think she did anything wrong i just found it not particularly enjoyable to watch uh now other storylines that have uh, developed throughout the, the course of the women's tournament. And there, there were some interesting ones, wasn't there? Because Maria Sharapova, as you said, wasn't really herself all the way through physically. I think that that, that was a problem for her. She wasn't able to, to fight through all the barriers that were in her way. But there were some, some good little storylines in there, weren't there? And Lucy Safarova, you have to say, was, was a revelation. And, you know, she's just bit by bit creeping up on the rest isn't she she she's doing it incrementally she's been to quarterfinals she reached that semi-final of Wimbledon last year now she's reached a final this is not a flash in the pan I don't think from her I don't think she's the most spectacular player in the world she's not she's not as explosive as Sabina Lizicki or, or uh, Madison Keys and players like that although she does hit a very hard tennis ball but she's not going to go away either I don't think. I don't think she's going to suddenly dip and, and have a, a really difficult season. I think she's just going to keep scrapping away and she may well get a Grand Slam title herself. Absolutely. She she really could. She's she's a gutsy girl and she hits the ball so cleanly. As you say, it's not the explosive generation of power that you see from some players on the WTA Tour like Alisiki or Amanda Keys, but it's an extremely cleanly struck ball. She's amazingly consistent but she also has weapons. She produces. She produces great when she's got a very strong serve. It's it's decent speed, good placement, and very consistent, which I think is becoming more and more important on the. I think we're going through a phase where the serve, on uh, on in the women's game is is more important than it has been in the past. She could nick. She could absolutely nick a Grand Slam. She's good enough to, and I love the way she's just been quietly beavering away. She's in sensational condition. She and she's disarmingly gutsy on the court because she's such a sweet sweet it almost does a disservice for her to continually be described as this as this sweet girl because it makes her sound a bit neat meek and nicey nicey but she is just the nicest possible character human being off the court and then she gets on the court and she's just she's equally delightful but also with this ruthless gutsy streak in her play and it's quite disarming but boy is it effective Sure is. We will watch her with interest when the tennis comes onto the grass courts. She won't be playing here at the Queen's Club, of course, but she will be on other grass court tournaments in the UK over the next couple of weeks, of course, culminating at Wimbledon. Now, we promised you that we were going to speak to the man who's in charge of this luscious green turf in front of us here at the Queen's Club, Mr. Graham Kimpton, the groundsman. We also spoke to Getty photographer Clive Brunskill, who's snapped away all around the world some of the greatest moments in tennis history. Now, I started the interview by telling these gentlemen how long I've been involved in this sport at the Queen's Club. 20 years, I told them. Well, get a load of this from Graham Kimpton. Uh, I've been here 31 years now. So, 31 years? Yeah, a little bit longer than you. Not much, <laughs> not much though. I'm catching up. And your dad, you took over from your dad who was attending to these manicured lawns for all those years. I did, yeah. He did 43. Um, he started back in uh, 66, which was a good year for England, apparently. So, uh, yeah, so uh, we got a bit of history between us. Obviously, it was a big overlap in between. But, uh, yeah, we've seen a few, few sights along the way. And Clive, how long have you been coming? Uh, I've been coming here since 1986. So it's quite a long time. 
It's it's great, and you know, I love the atmosphere at Queens. I mean, it's it's a great uh, pre-tournament for Wimbledon, and you know, the courts are superb. The players love the. Tournament. He has to say that the blokes sitting right next to us. Of course, but but they are, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant place to come. You know, it's just, to me, it's England. You know, it's fantastic. You know. Now, Graham. Over the years, you've you've come across just about every generation of tennis player that we that we know. I mean, going right back to I mean, I don't want to say too much about your age here, but you know, we we've seen Ivan Lendl and Jimmy Connors come back here as coaches in the last yep. ten years, haven't we? But you remember with them when they were players, don't you? I do, yeah. I mean, we had a good relationship with uh, with all the players, but uh, Jimmy and Ivan were uh, were always good for a laugh sort of thing and um, you know it was a little bit I wouldn't say they didn't take it seriously but they was a little bit more relaxed then and uh, you could always you know have a few moments with them and um, I guess uh, we, we had quite a few memories with Jimmy going back you know I've seen him ride around here on the back of a motorbike you know with no helmet on and uh, the, the story of you know when we we, uh, we played a trick on Ivan stealing his push bike you know has, has been well documented but uh, oh, yeah. do tell us about that what happened there well, I mean, he used to he used to rent a house in in Wimbledon, uh, and then he used to cycle here to come and practice. And even for our event, he would cycle down Putney High Street, which he wouldn't want to do these days. And um, so he was giving us a bit of stick about the courts one day, you know, all tongue in cheek stuff. So we just hit his bike, and then he didn't like it. He got a bit upset, but uh, you know, we saw him a few years ago, and he was back with Andy, and um, you know, he's forgiven us just about. So uh, yeah. absolutely, no, we we you know we we've seen them all over the years. You know, Mac, and you know, Cashy still comes in here most days. You know, so um, you know, we've, we're lucky to have a good rapport with them all, and uh, you know, they're they're not as serious as you think. They're they're a good bunch, really. I I still have vivid memories of. Uh, 2008, the year that Rafael Nadal won the title here and coming here a couple of days after winning the French Open and it's raining, but he wants to practice. And you basically being forced to assemble a, a court as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah, well, we, we, we were sort of waiting a long while for him, and I think he came in on Eurostar that night, and um, uh, it got to about, I don't know, 6.37 when his practice normally finishes, and it was getting dark. And uh, anyway, he, he turned up, and we put the out, and it was drizzling. It was, you know, pretty steady. So I went over to him, I said, oh, you know, uh, Rafa, I mean, like, you know, first name terms, um, <laughs> you're not going to play in this race at all. I don't want to play in this, but I've got to play in this. And uh, he went and practiced. I said, well, you know, don't run out too wide. It's a bit slippery where it's very green. And um, he hit for 45 minutes. And um, my biggest problem was telling the members who were watching that stage that they are not allowed to play in the grass <laughs> the following week uh, when it's raining. You, you mentioned the members because that's the thing, isn't it? What people perhaps don't realise, they see the stands up during the tournament and, you know, the world's media descend. Mm. But the rest of the year, you are here. It, it is a, t- a tennis club. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a members' club, and I think that's the attraction of it. You know, it's, I think there's maybe only one or two other tournaments around the world where you see a members' pavilion next to a centre court, and um, the rest of the year, that's our job. That's our bread and butter. I mean, it's great to have the top players in the world coming here and, you know, playing on your courts, and if you're lucky enough, giving you a few compliments. But, you know, our bread and butter's providing uh, these facilities for the members, and the flip side of having the top players here and the extra budget you get is they get the great facilities for the, the day-in, day-out play. Um, so, that's yeah, that's... That's what we do. That's our job. Now, before I go on to ask Clive about taking pictures of these players standing on the heads and goodness knows what else he gets them doing, Graham, what, what does it go into making these courts what they are? Because, I mean, is, is it literally a year-round job to look after that centre court or is it something that you let grow to, to knee height and then sort of chop it down and then do a bit of quick work uh, around April? 
Well, no, I mean, it is an old cliche, but, you know, the preparation for for one year starts the day after the, the tournament finishes the previous year. And so um, it is a year-round uh, process. Obviously, there's slightly more dormant periods, and we may may or may not have been in that just lately. It's a beautiful here, uh, day sitting here now. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of scarification, aeration, seeding, feeding programmes, weeds and pests that you have to deal with with various you know chemicals or cultural methods so it's a it's a year-long round process and um it's all in the timing that's what i like to say you know if you do the right thing but at the wrong time it can be just as bad as not doing it if not worse but what happens if you get a couple of weeks of rain around the end of may and the tournament's just around the corner how do you still get them looking the same as if it's a blazing hot day <laughs> the few weeks before instead well i mean you know that, that's that's the secret isn't it yeah i mean it, obviously if it's wet and overcast in the build-up they're going to be a little bit more slick a little bit more slippery but um you know we get the court covers delivered three weeks before the tournament and you know generally speaking you've had a drier spell during you know april and may so you're getting them a bit firmer you're getting the roller on there but um yeah it's it's it, that's our thing dealing with the conditions and, and trying to get the best out of the surface i mean there will be years where it's a bit slicker than others due, purely due to the climate but that's that's the beauty of grass isn't it you know Sure is, living, breathing surface. Clive Brunskill, who has been photographing the best players on the planet for the last 30 years. Am I allowed to say 30 years? 30 years, yeah. Actually, probably 32 years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, what what is it like? I mean, you're, you've got this incredible vantage point. I, I got chance to sit there once during the Australian Open final two or three years ago when I was working for Five Live and just give that courtside vantage point and even after all the years I've been working in the sport I didn't realize what it was like and just how intense it is down there I mean everybody's jostling for position aren't they I mean it's a pretty competitive environment isn't it well yeah I mean you know you've got you've got to remember you've probably got like a hundred photographers around a court say at Wimbledon for the for the final and the, and the matches and you know you've got all these photographers who are all competing for the same space in papers whether they're freelancers whether they're the newspaper guys and you know there's so many seats are really good some seats are okay and some seats are not so good and you you know you're jostling for position because you want to be at the end where the family boxes at Wimbledon or the, the, the side where Kim sits when Andy plays at Queen's, you, you want to be that side because you know he's going to celebrate if he wins that way. He's not going to give you anything the other way. So it's kind of like everybody wants that end position or everybody wants to be that side of the family box on the court. So it is it is intense, you know. I mean, it's, it's a business out there. We're not there for fun, you know, on the amateur camera club hour, you know. <laughs> 77 years ended of Britain waiting for a, a Wimbledon champion when Andy won it a year and a half ago. Where were you? Where were you on the court? I was there. I was right in front of him on the um, opposite the umpire. So I had probably the prime seat, great seat, slightly to his family box side. And what did Andy do? He turned the other way. <laughs> and when I asked him about this a little bit later on when we were doing a photo shoot, and I said, you know, you turned the wrong way. And he said, I just didn't know which end of the court I was. He said, I was just after su such a big game. He said, I just celebrated. And it was like, and I said, oh, I said, you know, all the guys went crazy. And he just laughed. He thought it was fantastic <laughs> that the photographers didn't get the picture. But, uh, but no, it, it, you know, he's good. And for me, that was like probably the, the highlight of... Uh, shooting tennis because I'd shot the Jeremy Bates and the Tim Hemmons and the Rosetskis and you finally get to someone like Andy who went and won Wimbledon and it's like I just didn't know what I was feeling it was kind of weird because 
you build up that what would it be like and his celebration was kind of calm and then he just went on his knees and we thought he was going to be running around jumping in the box and all this you know the family box so it was kind of kind of strange but but for me the bigger thing was probably winning when he won the US Open because it was just the first Grand Slam that we'd won for so long once he'd won the US when he got Wimbledon it was kind of I, th I felt that the bigger achievement may have been the US, which gave him that confidence to go and get the Wimbledon. But it was fabulous. I mean, picture-wise, great. Um, you know, you take that forever, have the you, memories. Have you got a, a personal favourite tennis shot that you've taken? I know, there's, everybody asked me that. And <laughs> to be honest with you, you know, there's, there's many, many shots taken over the years. Um, you know, Rafa Nadal gives me great shots when he wins, when he won at France, when he won the eighth or the ninth. I think it was the eighth, and he rolled over on his back, and I was in the roof looking down on him. Fabulous picture. Um, I always say he's my lucky player because wherever I go, I seem to get something of him. But, um, you know, to be honest with you, it, it, it's kind of like maybe Pat Rafter when he played Tim Henman in 2001 at the Aussie Open, and he beat Tim. And it was, I think it was fourth round, and he ripped his shirt like the old Andrew Illy, the old Australian player used to do. And as he ripped it, I just it was right in front of me. And to this day, everybody loves that picture because you can see all the fibres tearing and it's backlit with the sun behind it. So, you know, even Pat likes it. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, it was a good sign. Sure is a good sign. Now, what about the other side to the job? You're, you're in the 80s, John McEnroe in front of you. And I mean... You guys are pretty much in swinging distance there if somebody gets angry, aren't you? Well, I, I was, when I think of Queens, I always think of McEnroe. That's the first name that comes to my head because I know he played great here, won here, and then he got banned from here, and then he came back. And when he came back, I think it was, you could correct me on that, I think it was around 92, maybe 93, and I remember sitting there watching him play, and he was really losing it again like he always did. And I remember him walking over and he was scouring at the photographers and he could hear the camera rewind. And that time it was film, not digital. So we had the, the rewind noise and he knew where that came from. And he would go to the photographer, give him a hard time. And I just remember he, he lost it and he walked back towards me and I was sitting right behind his chair. And he raised the racket and hit all the water on the side. And there's a picture of me cowering <laughs> from a photographer from the opposite side of the court. And I'm protecting my face. And it's just like the funniest thing, you know. And uh, that's, uh, that's my vivid memory of, of, of Queens. It always seemed to be something to do with McEnroe, you know. It was like, but, uh, yeah, no, he was good. He was a good character. And then, you know, there's been a lot since. Rafael Nadal, what's he like? Uh, Great guy, um, just, you know, really nice gentleman, you know, um, great to photograph on the court, great to photograph off the court. Um, and, yeah, no, really good and uh, been very good for me uh, personally because uh, I do a lot of his private photography. So, yeah, no, nice guy. Andy, again, you know, totally gets what it's all about and um, is always very good to photograph off the court and always makes us great pitches on it so you know and his great personality for the game uh, you know great guy Clive you're going to be back with us again this year yeah most definitely um, I wasn't here last year um, it was one of the first ones I've ever missed where were you I went to the World Cup well, you World want to get Cup, your priorities straight and I came back for Wimbledon for the last week um, hopefully to see Andy win but he didn't win a second one but there you go he's won one what more do you want
So there's Graham Kimpton and Clive Brunskill talking with us here on the tennis podcast at the Queen's Club. And we are just now a few days away from the Aegon Championships. Both of those gentlemen will be with us and manicuring these courts in the case of Graham and taking pictures of the players in the case of Clive. And Catherine Whitaker and I myself will be here as well, won't we? And Catherine, we are going to go daily during the Aegon Championships, a daily tennis podcast. Have you got enough to say? I don't think you need to worry about me having enough to say. I think, I think you need to worry more about the listeners having had enough of us. But uh, the demand is there. We're responding. We're responding to the demand. You keep telling yourself that. Yeah, I will keep telling myself that. Well, whether you're listening or not, we're doing it. And we are, absolutely. So starting at the weekend, we'll have a preview show. We'll be bringing you all the latest news, previewing the next day, reviewing the day's play, bringing you interviews, little features, including on a daily basis, legends of Queens looking back at the great champions of this tournament here at the Aegon Champions in Championships in the company of the great former BBC commentator, Mr. John Barrett, who retired about 10 years ago, but as agreed to make special appearances here with us on the tennis podcast what a treat that is i can't believe it was 10 years ago that he retired it feels you can hear his voice can't you ringing out over over tennis matches still it's just so iconic and so synonymous with particularly with grass courts because you associate his commentary with bbc and wimbledon don't you so um what a treat it certainly is. And he will be with us here on what will be the Aegon Championships Tennis Podcast. Do join us then. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs> 